Imagine, if you will, it's Friday, and you've just experienced the worst day of your life. You've attended the funeral of your best friend, your closest friend, and you are numb with grief and pain. All the plans that you had together have now vanished. The adventures that you dreamed together are now just echoes in your mind. The promises are just distant memories, and you're alone. It's a devastating day. After a couple of days, you decide that it's time to get out of the house, and so you go for a walk, and you head to your favorite coffee shop in order to get a coffee before you go for a walk, still feeling the pain of the loss. And you enter into the shop, and instantly you're reminded This is where you spend so much of your time together with your friend, dreaming and talking and laughing and encouraging one another, and you just need to sit, and you close your eyes, controlling the tears and the moment. The pain stings your heart as much as your eyes, and as you closed, as you have your eyes closed, you become conscious that somebody sits across from you and Immediately you think, can't they see that I'm struggling here? I just need a moment. And so you open your eyes and you blink a couple of times trying to take in who it is that you see. And in a sudden rush, all the breath that you have in your body is forced out as you jump up and the seat falls behind you and you look. It's him, your friend. The one that you thought was dead is now sat in front of you, alive, with your favorite cup of coffee. He's alive. How can this be? You were at his funeral. You saw him die. You saw him go into his grave. You know he's dead. And now he is sat in front of you, and he's alive, and you cannot question it. He's there. You see, the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died a horrendous, shameful death and then rose in his own power to life. That is what Christianity is. Without that central truth, Christianity is like any other religion. And if that is not true, it becomes just another thing that you can pick up and you can drop at will. But if that is true, if Jesus Christ died, if he rose again, it proves that everything he said about himself is fact. If it's not true, then it proves that he's a liar. You see, if I said that I was a world-class chef, and being British, it's understandable, you'd think, given that English food is so amazing and remarkable... Bland and stodgy. If I was a world-class chef, you would say, okay, Glenn, you need to prove this to me. And how would I prove it to you? Would I go rock climbing? Would I go uh, to, you know, as a really good drive off in the countryside? No, I would collect all the ingredients together and I would make the most incredible meal that would take your breath away. And you would go, Glenn, I am in no doubt that you are the world's best chef. You see, my action would prove everything that I said about myself to be true. And so Jesus' death and resurrection is that. It's proving that everything he said about himself is true. Without the resurrection, 
He just becomes another religion. You see, if the story is false, then Christianity is just like any other religion. And as we walk into Holy Week, Palm Sunday, as we are starting to put our attention upon this incredible event that we call Easter, then today I want to ask the question, is Jesus, is Jesus who he said he was? Because if this story of Easter is true, then it proves that he was everything he said he was. And that changes everything. It changes everything. If the story of Easter is true, it changes everything. If you are a Christian this morning and you have known Jesus for most of your life, if the story of Easter is true, if everything that Jesus said about himself is true, then it causes us to look at our own lives in comparison to his life and ask the question, are we resonating with him? Are we living for him? Are we following his teachings? If you are one of those who are, uh, you're not sure what you believe yet, and you're just seeking truth, we're so glad that you're here. We're so happy that you have joined us this morning in this journey into Holy Week, because we want to ask that question for you. If Jesus is who he said he was, then that question, that is, that's true, becomes the most important question you can ask yourself. Because what it does is it calls into question whether or what you are basing your life on actually is worthwhile. Is it enough to save you? Is it a lie? In order for us to really jump into this, then I want us to focus on one particular disciple. I think represents a lot of us really, really well, especially when this question, is Jesus really who he said he was, comes to mind. And his name was Thomas. And there's a one-word descriptor that comes to mind when you think about Thomas. And, and, and what is it? Everyone say it. Doubting Thomas. I feel sorry for Thomas. Imagine what it would be like if you were called and defined by your fault and had it attached to your name. Now, I apologize ahead of time if I have chosen a name in my little descriptors that are coming. I was desperately trying to think of people I didn't know at 33, but I am sure that I may offend one or two of you. You know, imagine if your name was Lying Lucy. Sorry, Lucy. Terrified Tim. That's Doubting Thomas, right? Terrified Tim. Lazy Liam. Gossipy Georgia. Too lazy to get out of bed in the morning, has terrible breath, dress sense, and relies too heavily on sarcasm to mask his insecurities. Ted. (laughs) If you were defined by your faults, how awful would that be? But not only temporarily, but for eternity. Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas, and we're referring to him 2,000 years later. I feel sorry for Thomas, but I resonate with him. Because he asked the question, in this scripture we're going to read in a second, is Jesus who he said he was? Let's read it together. John chapter 20, verse 25 through to 29. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands... Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe... 
Eight days later, his disciples, that's Jesus, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the story so far is this happens after Jesus rose from the dead. And so Mary Magdalene on the morning, on the third day, goes to the tomb in order to anoint Jesus as per their tradition. And she goes into the tomb and finds it empty with Jesus' grave clothes tidied into the corner. And so she runs to go and tell the disciples of her discovery. Peter and John then head towards the grave, the tomb. It's really interesting, if you look at the scripture, John clearly is the faster runner of the two, because he gets to the tomb first, but it's Peter that goes in. And Peter goes in and he finds that what Mary Magdalene had said was true, that Jesus had gone and his grave clothes were tidied there and witnessed the greatest miracle, the resurrection of the one that he knew was dead has now gone. Later on, he, he, the disciples are gathered and they, they talk to Thomas and they're saying, they're telling Thomas because, uh, and Jesus appears to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. So later they, they're telling him about this event. And then we get this classic statement in verse 25, I will never believe. In my early 20s, I had the joy of being asked to go and preach in a uh, a large established church in, in, in England, and, um, and it was a big deal because when you're starting off as a young preacher, if you get asked to preach anywhere, that's pretty miraculous. But to get asked to preach in this particular church was a really big deal. So, you know, I was nervous. I wanted to do a good job. And Sarah and I, uh, we were just married. This is our 25th year this year. So this is, this is a long time ago. We, this is pre-kids, PK, pre-kids. So we go, and, and I preach. I don't remember what I preach about, but you know, I do the sermon. Then I'm invited at the end of the service to go into the pastor's study. And so when we're in the study. It's quite a large study, a bit large office, and there's the, the worship team are there and different leaders and elders, and so I'm on my best behavior. You know, I've got my most spiritual voice on. Thank you. Yeah, such an honor. Thank you. Lovely. Praise God. Hallelujah. Lovely. Yes, please invite me back. Praise God. And then I, I was stood next to my lovely wife, and then I heard her talking to this other young lady who was in the study with us, and, and I heard these words, and my life caved in, because she said this, when's the baby due? At which point the lady, of course, said, what baby? I'm not pregnant. I'm like, oh, this was disastrous. I couldn't believe that Sarah had, had asked this question and, 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 and I was just trying so hard. On the list of things that you regret saying, surely asking somebody when the baby is due when they are not pregnant just by looking at their physique is up there. And I was sharing this story with a couple at church. We were laughing one night about this. And, and this particular lady, she said, oh, she said, I can beat that one. I said, oh, please tell me, thinking I need more sermon illustrations. 
You have to be very careful what you say around Pastor Phil and myself because we just go away and write stuff down. Like, really? She said, well, we were, we were traveling and we were staying in this hotel and we got into an elevator and she said, <laughs> she, said she said, oh, she said to the lady next to her, where's the baby Jew? Except she said, then I started patting her tummy. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm not pregnant. Oh. She said, but the worst part was that they then had to stand in an elevator in what felt like a, an elevator ride to heaven. It was so long in awkward silence. Things you regret saying. Do you not think Thomas regretted this? I will never believe. That's a strong statement. He doubted the truth. He doubted the resurrection of Christ. He doubted what Jesus said about himself. He doubted whether Jesus was truly who he said he was. And he's not alone in the Bible when it comes to doubting. John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, actually said, Are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Job, in 37 chapters, there's this constant question. Doubting, confessing his doubts. When it comes to God. In Matthew 28 and verse 17, Jesus is actually ascending to heaven after he's risen from the dead. And a crowd has gathered and the scriptures say this. And some still doubted. Jesus actually rising up right in front of them to heaven. And some still doubted. You know, they stood there going, well, you know, I've got a cousin who can do that. Where are the smoke and the mirrors and the cables? No big deal. See, as a preacher, I actually get encouraged by statements like that because I understand that there is nothing that I can say to convince you into heaven. Because if people who actually saw the miracle of Christ and him rising up from earth to heaven still doubted, yeah, well, not convinced. Where are the cables? Maybe it's a bit of a hologram. Going to keep my options open. Goat yoga, anybody? You know, I can't fathom it. How about you? How about you? Is he, Jesus, who he said he was to you? Or do you doubt? See, Thomas was surrounded by people, the disciples who believed, and maybe that's you. Maybe you have a husband or a wife or a friend, a brother, sister, somebody. Maybe you're sat here this morning and this person is next to you, and you are struggling with all these doubts, and yet they're like, listen, worship, praise the Lord. And you're like, I, I, you know what? I'm struggling here. I'm not sure whether Jesus is who he said he was. So why was the issue? What was the issue with Thomas? The issue with Thomas is really quite simple. Dead people don't get to be alive again. That's Thomas's issue. It's as much of an issue for him as it is for us today. Thomas wanted to believe, perhaps more than we do. He wanted there to be a Messiah. He wanted somebody to be there to release them from the tyranny of the Romans. He wanted Jesus to be the Son of God. And yet, he was questioning because he witnessed Jesus on the cross. And the Messiah is not meant to die that kind of death. He's meant to liberate them. And certainly, God is not meant to die a shame-filled death like that. I want to believe. And maybe that's you. I want to believe, Glenn. I really do. Because look, you're so excited about it. I, you know, I, I'd like a bit of that. I want to believe. But I've got to be honest, Glenn. The 
The Bible seems to contradict itself. Science seems to contradict the Bible. By the way, if I preached last summer about just that topic. If you want to listen to that, it's Psalm 8. But science seems to contradict Christianity. A flood? Really? Joshua singing down a wall? I mean, my singing's bad, but it's not that bad. You really want me to believe this, Glenn? And hell? Devil? I mean, Glenn, have you met some Christians? Man, they're mental. I mean, I don't want to be associated with what it seems like some Christians believe in. And how can there be a loving God when there's so much pain in the world? What about, what about the dinosaurs? What about the outdated teaching that I seem to find in here? You know, the teaching on sexuality and homosexuality and sex. And, but Glenn, just, just the story of Jesus itself, I've got some doubts. Is that you? You see, Jesus gives an answer to Thomas and he gives an answer to us. But it's not what we think. And arguably, it's not what we want. See, what he does is this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, and among them and said, peace be with you. I love that Jesus said that because if there was one thing that was not in that room when Jesus appeared to them, it would be peace. I'm sure there was a lot of, <gasps> and he carries on. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then this beautiful statement from Thomas. He goes from, I will never believe to my Lord, my God, my Messiah, my God. In seconds, Thomas went from doubting to devoted. He was completely hooked. He was like, you are my Lord. You are my God. What, friends, let's just consider what had changed for Thomas. What is it that's going to need to change in your mind and in your heart to make you move from devoted, sorry, doubtful to devoted? For those of you who are doubting, what is it that's going to make you change? How are you going to say, before the end of this service, my Lord, my God, what's it going to take? You see, Jesus doesn't give him an explanation. He doesn't give him a new approach to ethics. He doesn't give him a new philosophy, a new set of answers. Let's chat about the dinosaurs, Thomas. How about homosexuality? Let's talk about six days or six, uh, three billion years. He didn't, you know, crack out a, 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 an apologetics book and try and argue Thomas into heaven. He didn't give him any answers. What he did is he pointed to an event. There was no explanation. There was an event. See, Christians are devoted to an event, not an explanation. And what is the event? The event is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, by saying, put your hands there, Thomas, is pointing to an event. He's saying, look, if you can get a revelation of this, if you can experience this, Thomas, then all your doubts will go. Because believing this, Thomas, changes everything. Believing this, friends, changes everything. You see, I can't argue and convince you into heaven. 
If you were sat here waiting for some incredible evidence to appear before you, before you believe, I proved to you at the beginning of this sermon that's not enough for you. Because people saw the miracles, they saw the evidence, and that wasn't enough. Christianity is based on an event, and it's an event that we're going to celebrate this week. You need to believe and experience the event because it proves everything that Jesus said about himself was true. Because the only way he could rise from the dead is if everything he spent three years preaching was true. And if everything Jesus said is true, it means that there is a God. There is eternity. That he is the son of God. And he did live a perfect life. And he did die a death for punishment for the sin that you and I truly deserve. He died a horrible death. And he also said the only way to God is through himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, you can't have both ways. You can't say Jesus is a good teacher, great guy, good guy, good example. And yet not believe the good teaching you proclaim to be good. Because his teaching was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have to do something with that. So you might go, Glenn, it was easy for the disciples. You know, Thomas put his hand, you know what, I, I think that would convince me. Well, I want to I suggest to you that, that, that we have compelling evidence. Because Jesus actually owns that. He says, look, because you have seen and believed, you're blessed, Thomas. There's going to be people that come who still believe and they haven't seen. And that's you and me. How do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the Bible says so. Some of you just went, ah, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Because Jesus said it was true. Well, how do you know Jesus existed? Well, it says it in the Bible. Well, how do you know it's all true? Well, he died and rose again, so proved that it was true. Well, how do you know that's true? Well, the Bible says so, and your head explodes. Because, you know, it's just cyclical evidence. I am the smartest man in the world. Well, Glenn, how do you know that's true? Well, I'm the smartest man in the world. I know these things. How does this make sense? That might be something you're struggling with, the the whole scripture. So I'm going to give you a 50,000 foot flyby on the evidence of how I know the Bible to be true. Are you ready? First of all, let's just look at the New Testament. That Much of the New Testament proves the Old Testament and fulfills the Old Testament. Let's look at the style of writing. In the New Testament, literary scholars who are not Christians have studied the New Testament because trust me, it's in people's interest to try and disprove the Bible, right? So people far more smartical than you and me have studied this, trying to pick it apart and try and prove that it's not true. In the last 30 years, the evidence has decreased and decreased and decreased to say that the New Testament are just lies constructed by a church seeking to control a lay people. They've actually looked at the style of writing from the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they've seen that the fact that there's so much detail in there completely debunks the idea that it's a legend and a lie for this reason. If you take Mark, for example, Mark wrote about Jesus uh, being asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. 
See, Mark includes detail into that account. He was in the stern, he was asleep, and he's on the cushion. That you and I, when we go read a fictional book, we would go, well, that's normal. Detail is good. It adds to the story. But at that time, 2,000 years ago, legends were never written with detail because they don't add anything to the story. So either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John jumped ahead 2,000 years and started writing fiction in a way that actually only started 2,000 years later and had never been done before, or, as literary scholars would say, they are eyewitness accounts. They are written like eyewitness accounts, not lies, not fiction, not legends, because it's completely different from any other style of writing at that time. So then you have to go, well, those people were all lying. So Peter is preaching the sermon of his life at the beginning of Acts, and he's pulled in front of leaders, and and they want to pull apart what he said about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter is giving answer, and then it says in Acts chapter 4, the leaders had, quote, nothing to say in opposition. Do you not think that they would draw people? Well, it was just lies, Peter. All these people, they were there. There was no storm. They were there, but they were there seeing the miracles. So more and more, certainly in the last 30 years, the idea of scriptures being a lie and never happened has been debunked by non-Christian scholars, friends. But more than that, and for me, that's important. The fact that they were all written within a few years of Jesus dying, that's important to me. But more than that, I have to look at the people who wrote them. Because these men and women lived and died proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not talking in some metaphorical, I would live and die on the back of that. I'm actually talking in a literal way, not in a Facebook post kind of way. Literally lived and died proclaiming the truth that Jesus died and rose again. Why would they do that if it was a lie? They were cast out, persecuted, hunted down, tortured, And killed. Every one of the apostles died a martyr's death. Thomas himself was killed in India, proclaiming this truth. Stephen was stoned. Paul was decapitated. Why would they do that for a lie if it didn't happen? Take Peter. Peter is lying to a little girl before Jesus died, saying, I never knew him. After he died and saw Jesus rise from the dead, He is then willing to stand in front of leaders and proclaim what he knew to be true. What a change, friends. An event. Not an explanation. Peter pleaded with his executioners not to kill him in the same way that Jesus died. Because he said, I'm not worthy of it. And so he was crucified upside down. See, what had changed So they were compelled by a genuine belief in the resurrection. They were compelled by a genuine belief in the cross. This happened. And because we've watched a three-minute YouTube video about chicken feet in the Old Testament being contradictory, we think, oh, well, the whole Bible is is nonsense. Well, let let me tell you that most all of the things that are seemingly contradictory, actually, with good teaching, you will see that's not the case. The book... It's a beautifully put together book because it's been put together by God himself. It doesn't make mistakes. How do you know that? Because the Bible says it. How do I know the Bible's true? Because Jesus died and rose again. 
So, if Jesus died from the dead and it means that that everything he said is true, how do you respond? How do you respond? Christians, how do you respond? Because if everything Jesus said was true, then it means that he is alive in you. It means that the Holy Spirit has been sent to empower you. You have his presence. You have his provision. You have his power. You have his strength. This is all scripture, and we know it because we hear it every week. But have you actually received the revelation of that? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been charged up and anointed with the truth of it? Have you experienced the event of it? Because if not, then we should be on our knees pleading and asking God to fill us afresh. That when we open up the altar to prayer, you should be there. That if your first love, if you've forgotten your first love, if Jesus has now moved from being ultimate to you to being unnecessary, You need to confess and ask for forgiveness because men and women have died on the truth of this so that we too could believe. Is Jesus ultimate or unnecessary in your family? Is Jesus ultimate or unnecessary in your relationships? Is he ultimate or unnecessary in your work life? Is he ultimate or unnecessary in your friendships and in your church life? Because if he's ultimate, then we should live like that. And then I dream, as a pastor, I dream about what our city would look like if a Christian's group as small as this would actually start living out the event rather than just trying to explain away and keeping quiet and being distracted and doubtful. If we were truly devoted, then what would our city look like? vibrate with the Holy Spirit power. You'd walk into coffee shops and people would be there bowed, praying. That your workplace would be radically different. Do you believe this could happen? Because it has happened many times around the world. And the fact that we don't pray for revival as much as we should is a reflection that we don't actually believe in the event as much as we should. Christians, when we pray at the end of this service at Willow One Prayer tomorrow night, that is our opportunity to gather And pray in the power that Jesus lived and died and rose again for. But how do you respond if you aren't sure what you believe? What do you do with this truth? You know, you could shrug and go, well, I'm not really ready to commit. You see, you have to make a decision with this. You have to commit. Because as C.S. Lewis so eloquently put it, he said either Jesus was a liar, and I've spent a lot of time showing you that he wasn't. He was a lunatic, again, done my best to show you that that's not true. Or he's Lord. Liar, lunatic, Lord. Which is it? Well, you know, I, I don't really want to commit. No, you just did. Because either he's Lord or he's one of the other two. Well, I'm still thinking it through. Well, you still, you just made a decision. What do you do with that? You have to commit. Maybe like Thomas, you came in with questions. That list I gave you, you're like, yep, every one of those. You know, you're not alone. I've asked those questions and I've studied and I've talked and I've listened and I've prayed through and I've heard answers that have actually made my heart strengthen 
that what I believe is still true. And you have a whole eternity to find those answers out, literally. A whole eternity for that revelation. But right now, are you willing to follow him and trust him? One of the things he said that we've said is everything he said true about himself. And one of the things he said is that you and I were born separated from God because of our sin. That was one of the central teachings, that we are separated from God because of our willing sin. That's the root of all our problems. It's the story of the Bible. But you can really very roughly describe the story of the Bible as bad news, really bad news, good news, and really good news. If you're not sure what you believe, then please listen. The bad news is this. You are a sinner. You know that to be the truth. You know because you struggle with things, that there is shame and there's guilt, as maybe you came in here knowing, carrying things that you wish you could find freedom of. You've spent thousands in counseling. You've done yoga. You've done this religion. You've done that religion. And still, this feeling that you know that there's something wrong is there. You're a sinner, and it separates you from God because you were designed to be in relationship with God. And until you get that design and alignment, you're always going to feel disjointed, always. And you will die like that. And the scripture says, then you will go to hell like that. You're a sinner. This is the bad news. Separation is eternal, not temporary. No matter what you read, hell is forever. And that's a long time. That's bad news. You'll never know him or be in his presence. That's the bad news. The really bad news is there's nothing you can do about it. No amount of good living, good thoughts, giving to charity, being moral, going on humanitarian aid efforts, being nicer than the person next to you, pointing at other people and going, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. None of that is going to close that separation. None of it. So here's the good news. Are you ready for the good news? I am. The good news is this. is that God in his love and mercy and passion towards us sent his son named Jesus to live the perfect life that we are unable to live ourselves and died the death that you and I deserve to die because of punishment for our sins. Well, how can God do that? God's so powerful. Why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Because the same book that says that God is loving also says that God is holy and therefore just. And so there has to be just. Uh, There has to be justice and judgment, but Jesus, the good news is, came and died that death so that we could have the revelation and be filled with his presence. So here's the really good news. It's a gift. You have it. You can have it this morning. You can leave this place new, clean. You can have a Genesis moment, a, a complete change of life. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Righteousness, favor, presence, acceptance, invite is all yours. Eternity in the presence of God. But eternity starts today for you, for all those who receive it. Last night I preached this sermon. 
And we had the joy of praying and talking to people afterwards. And a young man came and said, I'm Thomas. <laughs> and you know what? He, he looked a smart looking guy. You know, late 20s. Wife who believed in Jesus. I've been struggling with this for years. He said this, but tonight I stopped doubting. Something happened in me. I'm like, yes! That's the really good news. How about you? Is tonight, this morning, the time when we just stop resisting and stop putting it off? It's a great time of year to become a Christian. Any day is a great day to become a Christian. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Sean to come and just start leading us in a prayerful moment. We're going to close our eyes and I'm going to invite you to take part in a moment that literally will reshape your life today and for eternity. It will define your life. And all I'm going to do is ask you something very simple. So we're going to close our eyes. We're just going to pray. And I'm going to ask you that, Glenn, if you say, Glenn, I'm, I'm Thomas, but I can feel something happening inside of me. I can feel like I'm seeing the event. I'm experiencing the event. I can't explain it. Good. Because that's the Holy Spirit. That's God saying, I choose you. I'm going to ask you to respond to that. Simply by putting your hand up, first of all, that's just for me to pray for you. But also, there's something powerful about a physical response. And then we're going to worship. And then we're going to have people at the front, Pastor Phil and Michelle and myself and a few others are going to want to talk to you before you leave and pray for you and give you something to read through. And you can be like that young man last night. Something happened in me, Glenn. That's really really good news. So is Jesus who he said he was? Yes. And he loves you and died for you and rose again to prove it. Let's pray.